All right, let's dive into Acts chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me just do a little bit of introduction. We always ask to see Jesus more clearly when we study the scriptures. Jesus is, of course, on every page. He's in every chapter, every verse, every line. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted in the Gospels. He is revealed in the book of Acts. Jesus is preached in the epistles. Jesus is explained, and in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected, and we're still expecting him today, and we look forward to the day when we will see him. I look forward to seeing his return. If I don't get to see his return, I look forward to the day when I'll see him in glory, when I cross over that Jordan River and uh, am reunited with loved ones who've gone on before. But I think it's so important for us to, uh, first of all, when we're reading the scriptures, to look for Jesus and to look where he is and where in the world his gospel is. When we read through the gospels, we, we are reading where in the world Jesus is at that time. And when we read through the book of Acts, we are discovering where in the world the gospel is going at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told his disciples, Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we're reading this book of Acts and we're seeing where in the world the gospel is going. And I'm so grateful that the gospel got to me. It got to you. I'm so grateful that those early disciples followed the commandment of Jesus to go into all the world and that it got to us tonight. And so we're going to discover tonight, or we're going to read about the spreading of the gospel beyond Jerusalem into Samaria and to other regions, even to the ends of of the earth. And we're also going to discover uh, the many people who were impacted by Philip's preaching and teaching. Up to this point, we've really heard preaching from Peter. We heard preaching from Stephen, the first martyr. And now tonight, we're going to hear preaching from uh, the apostle Philip. And so I'm really looking forward to that. We don't, we don't get a lot from Philip, but tonight we get a little bit from him, and uh, I think you'll be encouraged by it. So let's dive right in. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And Saul approved his execution. Uh, let me stop there and say this the chapters and verses of the Bible are not inspired. Um, the original writings did not have chapters and verses. And so Acts chapter 1 verse 8 should really be at the end of chapter 7 because it's talking about how Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And now we have a new paragraph in Acts chapter uh, 8, still in verse 1. Uh, verse 2 is not till later. So that's why I want to say 
the chapters and verses aren't necessarily inspired. They're there to help us find the, uh, the specific texts we want to read, but I just find it interesting that, um, you know, this verse, this first verse of, of chapter 8 really should be included at the end of chapter 7. And so sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we don't want to stop at the end of a chapter because the thought might not be closed yet. The story might not be finished. And so I just want to encourage you in your Bible reading, if you read a chapter a day, just be willing to read a few verses past there, just in case the story keeps on going. And so Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And in a few chapters, we're going to learn a lot more about this fellow named Saul. And I'm sure you know who he became. But for now, we'll talk about Philip. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Let's stop there for a second. Jesus in Matthew 28 says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of every nation. And we, kind of, at least I do, read that command and go, Oh, that's a nice thing for us to do because... You know, Jesus said it, and we'll get around to it in our time and in our way. Well, Jesus knew that they were going to have to scatter. They were going to have to leave Jerusalem because there was going to be a great persecution. And so they didn't, they didn't go into all Judea and Samaria really because they wanted to. They went into Judea and Samaria because they had to, to escape this persecution. And it's Peter who writes to these elect exiles in his two letters, First and Second Peter. And if you remember our First Peter series we did back in the summer of last year, you'll remember that Peter was writing to these people that were scattered all over the world for their faith in the gospel. They were escaping persecution. And so this is when it arises here in Acts chapter 8, this great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stuck around. Devout men buried Stephen and gave great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We don't have to wonder what the persecution looked like. We're told exactly what it looked like. Saul, this great persecutor of the church, was forcefully entering homes and dragging off men and women to prison who would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So what I love is they weren't scattered and running for their lives and afraid to mention this name. They took it as an opportunity to say, okay, well, we're fleeing this persecution in Jerusalem. Jesus already told us to go. So I guess now that we're going, we might as well preach his name because they loved him so much. And so they went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, 
when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. This is the same city that Jesus has his encounter with the woman at the well. And so they already knew about this Jesus. They'd already heard the woman at the well um, tell the people of her city, you have to come see this man. You have to hear what he's saying. He told me everything I ever did. And so when Philip shows up a few years later and he's preaching this same Jesus, they're already eager to hear this. They're um, their hearts are already fertile. They're all ready to hear. They're already ready to hear this word preached to them. But there was a man named Simon. Now, Acts chapter 8 tells us the story of Simon, a man who, and we'll read it, but just going to our notes here, a man who formerly practiced magic in the city of Samaria. He claimed to be someone great. And the people of Samaria were astonished by his magic. And they called him the great power of God. I can imagine, too, that the people of Samaria had a similar reaction to Jesus when, uh, she, when he was proclaimed by the Samaritan woman. They probably thought that what he was doing was magic or some type of, some type of psychic reading. Uh, I'm sure there were some genuine believers. She definitely was. But I think there were others in the city that might have thought, oh, great, here's another guy performing magic to entertain us. And Simon was one such person. Uh, he must have been very powerful or at least persuasive in his magic because they called him the great power of God. But when Philip came to Samaria, he preached the gospel. And many believed and were baptized, and Simon believed and was also baptized. But his mind was in a different place. He was more interested in the ministry for personal gain than being right with God. And when Peter and John arrived to Samaria a little while later to pray for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit, Simon offered them money in exchange for this power and it was Peter who rebuked him harshly, uh, telling him that his heart was not right with God and that he needed to repent. Simon asked Peter to pray for him so that none of his words would become a reality. So let's read that story now, after I've paraphrased it, and we'll make a few comments along the way. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 8, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria. He amazed them, uh, saying that he himself was somebody great. And uh, all the people paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic but 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this Simon character, he spent years amazing the people of Samaria. And now when Philip shows up preaching the gospel, and that word is accompanied with signs and wonders, Simon is now amazed. And the Bible tells us that many were saved and many were baptized. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. But we're going to find out in a moment that even though he believed, he at that point had not repented. And so he was not regenerated. And that kind of goes back to a conversation we've had several times at this study, which is when somebody believes, are they truly saved? Or what does, what kind of belief, what kind of faith what kind of actions, rather, are required to make belief a saving faith? And so James talks about that. Faith without works is dead. Belief without certain actions uh, does not result in a saving faith. And James describes two kinds of actions that result in a saving faith. The first kind of action is to offer a life. He gives the example of Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. An action that produces a saving faith is when we offer our lives, when we truly offer our lives to Jesus Christ. Another act that produces saving faith, James talks about, is the opening of a door. And he uses Rahab opening the door to the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, when they came to Jericho. She opened the door to them and let them in. And just like Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks, and those who let him in, Jesus enters them and dines with them, and he is with them. He takes up residence there. So too, when we open the door and let him in, our, our uh, faith becomes a saving faith because it's accompanied with the proper works. And so I believe that at this point in, in Simon's life, he believes to the extent that he hears the knock on the door. He believes in this Jesus person. Simon may very well have been there when the Samaritan woman proclaimed Jesus to her fellow citizens. He may have seen Jesus then. We don't know. The Bible says he was there for many years. And this is only a few years after that. So, I mean... It could line up that, that Simon heard about this Jesus. He may have uh, even witnessed him. But was his faith, was his belief accompanied with the appropriate works to make his belief, his faith, a saving faith? A regenerating faith that caused him to be born again with a brand new heart? Or was it just in his mind that he believed. Well, let's keep reading. Let's find out. 
Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember what happened back in Acts chapter 2. When the people believed Peter's message, the Bible tells us that they were baptized into the name of Christ. So when you're baptized into the name of Christ, you are saved and you are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee for your inheritance to come. But there is an infilling with the power of the Holy Spirit for ministry, for evangelism. Um, and so that's what has not yet happened for these uh, believers in Samaria. They were baptized into the name of Jesus. They were saved. And they were likely baptized with water because in the story we'll read after this about the Ethiopian eunuch, it was a common practice for people to believe and to be saved and baptized into the name of Jesus. And oftentimes that was simultaneous with water baptism or shortly thereafter. And so when the apostles down in Jerusalem heard, hey, up in Samaria, they're, they're receiving the word with gladness. Peter's there preaching and they're believing. Then they sent the apostles up to pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit an infilling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What is the gift of God? It is the Holy Spirit. You can't obtain the Holy Spirit with money. It is a free gift like salvation. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Look what he's told to do. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, uh, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So this is not language that describes a born-again believer. Uh, somebody who is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is not the same language, and I'll refer back to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 4. This is not the same language used of them. They were not, um, they were not uh, accused of being in the gall of bitterness or in the bond of iniquity. Uh, but Simon is. Even though he believed and he was baptized in water, his heart had not yet become... Regenerate. He had not yet truly repented uh, 
of his sins. He had not had a changing of the mind, which results in a changing of the heart. Repentance, remember, in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoia, the changing of the mind, changing of what you know. Meta means uh, changing, and noia, gnosis, what you know, changing what you know. That's what repentance truly is. It's, it's something that you, you change in your mind and, of course, you change in your heart, your innermost being. And so repentance changes a person. Simon had not yet done that, though he had believed and was even baptized. He wasn't truly born again just yet. But look what Simon says in verse 24. After he's rebuked sternly by Peter... He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so here is his first act of repentance. Simon is saying, okay, I get it now. And so he has a contrite heart. He says, pray to the Lord that nothing of what you said would come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. Now let's look at verse, uh, let's uh, finish the first page of the handout there. We'll read it together. The story of Simon highlights the danger of seeking personal gain from ministry rather than seeking a genuine relationship with God. I can imagine that Simon wanted the power that the apostles demonstrated because it, it appeared to be greater than the power that he was operating in years past. And so potentially he wanted to use it for selfish gain. It wouldn't surprise me. It's an inference. It's an, it's an implication from the text. It doesn't say it directly, but I think we can learn from Simon that seeking personal gain from ministry or from the Holy Spirit is a bad thing, that we should seek genuine relationship with God. And so despite his initial belief and baptism, Simon's heart and his mind, they were not right with God. His mind believed it, but he didn't have actions that accompanied that belief, making it a saving faith. And so he wasn't quite right just yet. Maybe he tasted and saw that the Lord was good, but he hadn't taken the whole meal yet. Maybe moved by emotion, he responded maybe he even got into the waters for baptism but he hadn't given his life yet he hadn't opened the door yet and that's why i think even though it says he believed and was baptized his heart and mind wasn't in the right place and he was able to commit this sin which caused the apostles to say you are still in the gall of bitterness and bound by iniquity you're still a slave to sin And so that's why I say sometimes when we just recite or when people just recite a sinner's prayer, there's potential that their heart and mind has not yet caught up with that and that they have not yet done the actions that accompany uh, 
a saving faith or that prove a saving faith. The story emphasizes the importance of repentance and humility before God. When confronted by Peter about his sin, Simon did not try to justify himself or argue back, but instead asked for prayer so that he could avoid judgment. That's why I believe Simon, after this rebuke, did become a true believer, that he was truly born again. Because he didn't argue. He just asked, pray for me that this doesn't happen. All right, let's uh, read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us to desert places. Sometimes to fulfill our calling, to fulfill our ministry, we are led to desolate places. This is not a bad thing. It's not an easy thing, but it's not a bad thing. Because something incredible happens here when Peter follows this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, this what I believe to be the Holy Spirit of God, directing him to go south to the desert place. And so look at verse 27. He rose and went. That is the appropriate action to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Get up and go. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading, note this, the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture that he was reading is like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth. Again, don't be afraid to open your mouth. When somebody asks you a question, Open your mouth. Let the Holy Spirit fill it. He will fill it. Especially if you filled your heart with the word. When you open your mouth, that word is going to come out. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
I love that it says, and beginning with this scripture, which means he probably went to other scriptures. He potentially went to another scripture that we're going to read in our notes. I don't know that he did, but it's interesting that this particular story is included in Acts. And uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book, felt it necessary to include this story for a particular reason. And so it says, uh, beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus, verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came upon some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Look at this. It's an interesting question that he asked. What prevents me from being baptized? Why does he use that word prevent? We're going to find out in a moment. Just remember that. And I believe it's because he's used to being prevented. He's used to being excluded. But let's keep reading and then we'll, we'll dive in. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, or Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel being preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. He was a high court official of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He was in charge of all her treasury. And this story shows us that the gospel was for absolutely everyone, that no one was prevented. No one was kept out. No one was an outsider. Whoever believed, whoever truly believed, was welcome in. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 23 that eunuchs were previously excluded from worshiping God. So what's interesting is we're told the ethnicity of this eunuch. He's from Ethiopia. And we know that there's an a Ethiopian connection to the Jewish people. Uh, Solomon had some connection there. If you catch my drift, and um, many Jewish people moved to Ethiopia, and there was a good relationship between the two nations. And so it's likely that this Ethiopian eunuch and his family were converts to Judaism, though they were not likely um, national Jews. They were not likely ethnic Jews because the Bible is uh, clear to tell us that he was Ethiopian. So uh, I believe that if he was um, an ethnic Jew that it wouldn't have been so clear, but there's a reason why the story has been included. And so I want to explore that a little bit, but go to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1 for a moment eunuchs were originally or previously excluded from 
worshiping God. And remember, in the Old Covenant, the only place that one could worship God was in the temple because that's where God was. That's where he chose to dwell. That's where his presence was. That's why when Jesus said it is finished, the veil in the temple that contained the presence of God was torn and the presence of God uh, was released to be everywhere all at once. That's why under the new covenant, what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman is true. There's a time coming when you're not, not going to worship on that mountain or that mountain, but you're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we are told this detail in Acts chapter 8 that the Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem to worship, to make some type of offering, uh, to practice his faith, but there was a big exclusion, a big prevention for him. And Acts, or Deuteronomy 23 tells us that no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, this was for a particular reason. God was not just discriminating against uh, certain people. He wasn't discriminating against people who had a terrible accident or uh, something of that nature. Uh, there were eunuchs in this time uh, who were involved in idol worship, and they were always trying to infiltrate um, the worship of the God of Israel uh, to, to lead the people of Israel astray. And so God here is really saying, listen, make sure none of those other priests enter into this temple and offer a sacrifice. Only the priests that I have appointed from the tribe of Levi. That's why uh, when anybody else would offer an uh, sacrifice on the altar, it would desecrate the temple. And so that is really the direct interpretation of Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And yet, of course, there is multiple applications of this verse throughout Jewish history. And so there was a very blanket um, interpretation and application, which was just to take it literally. If any man had a crushed testicle or for whatever reason his male organ was cut off, then he was not to enter the assembly of the Lord. And so this Ethiopian eunuch, though he went to Jerusalem to worship, he could not worship with everyone else. He was prevented. He was kept out. He was excluded. Even though he believed even though he worshipped the God of Israel, he was kept out. But Isaiah foretold of a time when those very same people would be included. Let's go to Jer or, sorry, Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5. What's amazing about the the law of God and the covenants of God is that whatever God institutes in one covenant, he fulfills in another. And nothing is left undone. So there is this very specific rule 
this very specific commandment in the Mosaic Covenant. We read in Deuteronomy 23.1. But God doesn't forget about that one. In fact, through the prophet Isaiah, he foretells of a time when those people who were excluded in Deuteronomy 23.1 would be included. Let's read Isaiah 56.3-5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. I wonder if Philip starts with the passage in Isaiah that the eunuch was reading. And then, because this eunuch was very rich, had access to the treasury of the queen, he likely had the entire scroll. I wonder if Philip knew to open to this passage and read this these verses, read this prophecy, to which I wonder if that's when the eunuch said, what prevents me from being baptized? If Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the the first prophecy I was reading and, and you were telling me about, then does it stand to reason that Jesus and the new covenant in his blood um, is, is also being referred to in, in Isaiah 56, and am I really included now? And if I am, then what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from going all the way and being included? What prevents me from being given a house within the walls of God? What prevents me from having a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters? What prevents me from having an everlasting name? that will never be cut off. I wonder. I don't know. It doesn't say. But we know that Philip opened his mouth and the Spirit filled it. The same Spirit that inspired Isaiah to prophesy The same spirit that inspired Moses to write down the law that was given to him is the same spirit that that filled the mouth of Philip to preach to this eunuch who up until that time was always excluded, always prevented, always kept on the outside until Jesus came and made salvation available to all who would believe. Philip's spirit-led encounter was to fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah. God doesn't leave anything undone. Doesn't forget or neglect anything. And I wonder if the inclusion of this seemingly obscure story in the book of Acts is to show us that the gospel is for absolutely everyone And no one who truly believes will ever be excluded.
We're told in this chapter about a man who believed and was baptized but hadn't been truly regenerated until he repented. And we're told in this chapter about a man who was always excluded, though he believed in God, what I would assume is his entire life. And then when he finally heard the gospel, when he finally heard it, when he finally heard the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, he then truly believed and was baptized. Both unlikely candidates, people from Samaria, people from Ethiopia, outsiders. It sounds nice back in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. But in Acts chapter 8, we see where the rubber meets the road and they actually have to let those people in. Those who were excluded now have to be let in because they now truly believe. And sometimes that's harder than we think.